we are, uh, this week we are returning back from our long hiatus from Exodus. We're going to go back into Exodus. We are on Exodus chapter 23. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there with us. And before I read that, before I read, we're going to be in the first 18 chapters today. We're going to cover the first 18 chapters. And before I read that, I mean, sorry, the first 18 verses today. Um, and before I read that, though, I want to I remind you of 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture. And I want to remind us today that Exodus 23 is not an exception to that. These are the words of God. So, like I said, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. We're going to read the first 18 verses. Exodus chapter 23. This is the word of God. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in, in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe binds, blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. Lost my place. That your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman. And the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. And in it you, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest for the first of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. Heavenly Father, I ask that you, by your spirit, would cut us to our hearts today and that you would cause us to respond appropriately. I pray that you would convict us of our sin and of, the sh of our shortcomings 
and that you would give us courage to walk uprightly before you in this world. Move us beyond our apathy for your glory, God. Set this sermon on fire and use it to set our hearts and this church and this community on fire. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. All right. I am not cheating and skipping verse 19. We're going to get to that next week. It's really a weird verse, so we're not going to try and get to it today. But here we are. We're going to go through these kind of verse by verse, chunk by chunk here. So verses 1 through 3, what we have here, we're told not to spread a false report. We're told not to join hands with a wicked man or fall in with the many to do evil, bear witness in a lawsuit to pervert justice. In other words, don't pervert justice. Don't be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Don't be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. These are all examples of perverting justice. And so not only are we told not to spread a false report, we think of this really easily when it comes to don't lie, right? Don't lie. Not only are we told not to spread a false report, it goes even further in this, in this command here, and we're told not to receive a false report. Don't join hands with the wicked man in his lawsuit. It is a Christian virtue to be wisely skeptical, meaning we should, we should be people who are not easily and quick, quickly swayed by unverified reports or rumors or one side of someone's story. We see that in Proverbs 18, 17, which we'll read later. We're to refrain from even receiving the false report, and we certainly want to make sure that we are not becoming a, a malicious witness ourselves. We want to make sure we're not spreading it. Don't receive it, but especially don't spread it. Don't become a malicious witness and a perverter of justice by spreading the lie. Why? Why? Because it's really important for us as Christians to be people who proclaim the truth, to proclaim the truth. And so we don't want to spread lies. We don't want to spread false reports. And we see this, we see this idea that, that we see in verses one through three of this kind of mob rule. Don't join in with the many to do evil. Join in with the many to do evil. There's a temptation for us as people that if we have enough might, we can make the rule. Might makes right is the idea. And so this is the temptation for humans. We have this temptation that if we can get enough people to agree with us, we can get away with whatever we want. We see this in socialist movements where the rich or the private corporations, powerful people are vilified simply for having more than the mob. They're deemed evil. They're deemed guilty because they have what the mob wants. In verse 3, we're told not to be partial to the poor just because they're poor. We need to uphold justice. Not uphold the poor man. Uphold justice. We see this mob justice mentality in the Me Too movement that is, that is going on right now. We have a me, this movement, Me Too movement, and we see this mob mentality kind of hijacking this serious issue. This mob justice mentality and, and what, you, what you have is this climate in which someone can make an accusation and the person who is accused, the accused is sentenced, guilty, 
executed before it even gets a day off of Facebook. You know what I'm saying? It's just mob justice. And you, you can, we live in a time right now where a culture where, especially men, a man can be accused and the accusation alone can carry enough weight to completely destroy a public reputation, a public career. We, as Christians, we need to be careful to seek justice, to pursue justice. Is the guilty, is the accused guilty or is the accused innocent? Is the accused guilty or is the accuser perverting justice? Of course, it's not to say that every person who claims and uh, makes an accusation is doing this. But as Christians, we need to take very seriously accusations and we need to with uphold justice. Not to hear the rumor and just believe it. I'm never doing business with them again. Did you hear what community, Taylor Community Watch said about that company? Don't go back there. <laughs> All right. There's two sides to every story. And in the case of Taylor Community Watch, there's a lot more than two, apparently, a lot of times. Um, we see this in racial injustice movements where people are content to vilify and condemn others based solely on the color of skin or based solely on the nation of origin. As Christians, we need to be held to a higher standard. We don't judge one another based on the color of skin. We don't judge one another based on the nation of origin. We judge according to justice. We see this in homosexual and the, and the what we could call the gender bender movement where sodomites and transvestites can claim victimhood status when faithful Christians merely do not approve. In our society, in our culture right now, all you have to do is uh, to be accused is to not approve. Not approve. Don't give your blessing for wickedness and you will be accused. You can be accused of victimizing someone else. It's way too easy. It is way too easy for Christians especially to have this knee-jerk reaction to sympathize with those claiming victimhood and without actually doing the hard work of pursuing justice. We as Christians are so tempted to easily just have this knee-jerk reaction to sympathize with the victim, to side with the victim without taking the time to pursue justice. We must pursue justice. We must uphold justice. Why does God twice here warn us not to be partial to a poor man? Why? Because he knows that his people will be tempted to favor the one who appears to be a victim. We will be tempted because of grace and mercy and compassion. We will be tempted at times to favor the one who we feel is the victim. And so God twice in the, in the matter of these verses warns us, don't be partial to a poor man in a lawsuit. Offense and victim status can be weaponized. And this is exactly why God war warns us not to be partial. He knows this weapon of claiming victimhood will be used on us as Christians. It will be used on us. We see this happening. So Proverbs 18, 17 says this. The one who states his case 
first seems right until the other comes and examines him. I'll give you a perfect scenario of this. If you have more than one child at home who can walk and talk, you know this story all the time. All of a sudden, peace and quiet, and somebody comes busting into where you are. He hit me, and he's trying to take my toy away from me. Well, let's get the other kid in trouble, right? Well, let's hear his side of the story. I had it first that he came in and he ripped it away from me and just ran off. Okay, not exactly what we thought, right? This is exactly the thing. We need to be people who pursue justice, don't ha- not just have a knee-jerk reaction to who we feel is the victim. Is that the easy way? No, it is not always easy. It is rarely easy to pursue justice. This is why lawyers get paid a lot of money. Judges have big jobs because it's not always easy to pursue justice. I'll give you another example, a much more serious and grave example. If, if we, uh, this is a case we hear so many times, and I pray to God we never have to deal with it again, but this is, the, this is an example. We hear of a young black man being shot by police. As a Christian, as a Christian, our first response should not be a smug attitude that says, uh, he was probably a thug, he probably deserved it. At the same time, our response should not be outrage at the police. That was injustice. I can't believe they shot another poor uh, young black man. As a Christian, what should our response be? What are the facts? What happened? What was just? Who was justified? Is this, has this been a travesty of justice? Or was this justified? We can go back and we can look at these uh, different scenarios in our recent history, and we can look back and we can start to sort it out. This was, this was justified. This was not justified. This guy was in the right. This guy was in the wrong. And we can do that. And as Christians, that's what we must do. It is really easy for us to have a knee-jerk reaction, to hear this, and whichever side you fall on in these debates, to just get mad at the police or to just say he probably deserved it and throw it away and defend the police at all costs. But as Christians, we need to pursue justice no matter who it favors. No matter who it favors. As Bible-believing Christians, we need to be ready for people to bear false reports against us and against our fellow uh, brothers and sisters. Claiming offense Claiming victim status because we faithfully adhere to the word of God is something that we're going to have to deal with. We're going to have to deal with it. We already are. Christians already are. Christian bakers, Christian photographers are already having to deal with this. They're being sued right now because they refuse to glorify sin by baking a cake for a gay wedding or taking pictures for a gay wedding or letting them use a church facility for a gay wedding. We as Christians need to be prepared to have offense, uh, this weaponized victimhood or offense turned on us. We need to be prepared for that. This is happening all over. Part of the charge from Exodus 23 is to refrain from perverting justice. So you may be, be accused of being on the wrong side of history. You may find yourself facing the mob or facing the court as some Christians have 
Some Christians have faced courts. Tim Davis is an example of that. I think in uh, when the Obergefell decision was passed by the Supreme Court, this county clerk had upheld their state constitution and said, I refuse to do this for our state constitution and for my own conscience sake. She went to jail. You remember that? She went to jail. We, we, may be, uh, we may face the mob, we may face the court, we may face the Congress. But as Christians, we're charged by God himself here that we would not fall in with the many to do evil. That we would not fall in with the many to do justice. Even if it were true that the majority of American, Americans or American Christians said, you know what, we need to update our Bibles and we need to come around on this issue. Christian, your personal and individual responsibility is to be faithful, to not pervert justice, and to stand up for righteousness. To not join in with the many to do evil. It does not matter what the LGBTQRS alphabet people say or what any other mob demands. It does not matter what the mob says. We are to obey our Heavenly Father. And listen, like I said, you may face the mob, you may face the court, you may face the Congress, but as a Christian, you're going to face God one day. As a Christian, you, by yourself, without the mob behind you, you're going to face God. And this is what he's going to say to you. He is either going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he is going to say to you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, I don't know you. We, as believers, do not, must not fall in with the many to do evil. We know, we must remember that we have a standard, a father above us who we're going to have to answer to one day. Verses four and five, four through five says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray and you shall bring it back to him, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it you shall rescue it with him. What does this mean? This is an example of loving our neighbor and even more specifically, loving our enemy. Did you know the Old Testament talked about loving your enemy? Here it is right here. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 4, verses 43 and 44, he said this, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sometimes Christians think he's quoting from the Old Testament there and saying, hey, hate your enemy, love your neighbor. But Jesus is not quoting from the Old Testament. He is not teaching, he's not saying that the Old Testament teaches us we are to hate our enemies. What he's actually doing is aligning himself with the Old Covenant. He's aligning himself with the law, and he is opposing this Pharisee-approved, narrow definition of neighbor. And we, we see, remember, Jesus interacted with this lawyer who was trying to justify himself in Luke 10, 25 through 37. And, and this lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who, in other words, who do I have to really love? Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And he flips the script at the end of that parable. And he asks the lawyer. He asks the lawyer. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, the guy falls ill on the side of the road. Op, robbers, you know, attack him. And so he's laying on the side of the road, just, you know, holding on to life. And he's passed by, you know, the people. And who stops? The Good Samaritan stops. And so Jesus, at the end of that parable, he flips the script. The, the, guy, the, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? But you know what Jesus asked the lawyer at the end of the parable? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Which of these three do you think, good lawyer, proved to be a neighbor? And of course, the lawyer knew the answer. Of course, the lawyer knew the correct answer. And so he said wisely, the one who showed mercy was the neighbor, was the good neighbor. In other words, the one who showed mercy was the one who kept the old covenant law. By God's standard in the old covenant right here in Exodus 23, we see that they were those Followers of God were required to stop and help the man. But they did not. God who never changes is the same in the Sermon on the Mount as he is here in Exodus 23. And he expects his people who have been shown great mercy to show great mercy. Even to our enemies. Why? Because we were his enemies. When he showed us mercy. We were his enemies when he showed us mercy. So we show our enemies mercy. Now. See what we just did here. Verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 4 and 5. Lest we forget what we read in the first verses. God in the next verse. In verse 6. He lovingly repeats himself. And he says, you shall not pervert justice. It's, it's been said, and I couldn't agree more, that the besetting sin of Christians today is niceness. Niceness. So these verses, verses 6 and 7, I mean verses 6 through 9. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor, to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So he revisits the charge to not pervert justice, but rather he tells us to judge as we have been judged. How have you been judged? Mercifully or harshly? Mercifully? Yes. We're told not to favor the poor or, or the perceived victim, but with clear sight, judge rightly. You know, we, we've talked about this before. I think we even mentioned it last week. The, the picture of Lady uh, Justice holding the scales. What, what is she? She's blindfolded. Why? Because we need to be clear sighted to see justice. That's why she's blindfolded, because we need to be clear-sighted to see justice. We tend to excuse perverting justice because it feels to us like showing mercy. It 
feels just like showing mercy. And so we excuse perverting justice. When I say perverting justice, it just sounds bad, right? We could call it something else. That makes it sound a lot less bad. You know, putting our thumb on the scale. We could call it affirmative action. To where we're just kind of uh, thumbing the scales a little bit to, to excuse this or that. When you call it perverting justice, it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But it's, this is what God calls it here. And we excuse it when we think we know better than God. We think that the only way to let the world feel like we love them is by putting our thumb on the scale a little bit. Putting our thumb up. I mean, he's poor. He's rich. Oh, my. Give him a break. Thumb the scale a little bit. And we do that because we want to let them know. We want to let them feel like we love them. But the Bible warns us against that. God doesn't want us to let people uh, feel like we love them. He wants us to actually love them. And we cannot actually love people unless we are obeying God. We do this by giving the guilty a free pass. You know, God never gives the guilty a free pass. When the, the fact that you're saved by grace does not mean that you're given a free pass. Do you know what it means? Your salvation was not free. God did not look at the price tag of your salvation and just say, oh, you know what? I can get away with it. Shove it in his pocket and walk out the store. No. Your salvation cost God dearly and he paid every penny. God does not look at the injustice and give it a free pass. And so he wants us to do the same thing, to uphold justice. We're told in verse 7, do not kill the innocent and the righteous. We're warned here that God will not acquit the wicked. This should be an especially bone-chilling wake-up call to any of us who would not actively oppose and speak out against our nation's wholesale torture and slaughter of reborn persons. These people who have been unjustly sentenced to death and heinously and cruelly murdered in what what should be the safest place on planet Earth for them, their mother's womb. They have been unjustly sentenced to death. And as Christians, we have an obligation to stand up, to not pervert justice, to not receive a false report or spread a false report. It's just a clump of cells. But to stand up for justice. We, we, we need to remember well that the first sin of Adam, the first sin of Adam was not that he took and ate the fruit. The first sin of Adam was that he stood by silently and complicitly while his wife, the mother of the living, sinned, was deceived and took the fruit. That's the sin of Adam, that we must be careful for. Again, we're told in verse 8 to uphold justice, and this time by refusing to be bribed in order to subvert the cause of the one who is actually in the right. This is followed by a charge to 
refrain from oppressing sojourners. Refrain from oppressing sojourners. And it implies that we are to remember um, where we have come from. And we are to show the same mercy that has been extended to us. And so a relevant question is whether or not this passage, this command, this charge here speaks at all to our view of modern day immigrants. In our country right now, there's highly charged debates about immigration and immigrants. And does this scripture speak to that? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. We have, we can have debates. We should have debates about immigration policy. We should have debates about border security. We can have debates about border walls. All of this is fine and good. Have the debates. Let's talk about the policy. But guess what? At the end of the day, this must inform what those policies are as Christians, what policies we support and what policies we do not support. As Christians, we may never forget the mercy from our Heavenly Father while we were sojourners, while we were slaves. God extended mercy to us. Verses 10 through 12, these verses lay out the divine instruction for work and rest. Every seventh year, we're to let the land rest, God says. Every seventh day, we are to have our own rest. After we work six days, we are to rest. These are examples of ceremonial laws, ceremonial laws in the old covenant that in Jesus Christ in the new covenant are redeemed and take on new forms, okay? Remember, Jesus says that he came not to abolish the law. We don't get to just ignore this because Jesus came. Jesus didn't come and abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17. And so this means that while Sabbath laws may take on new forms, some of these Sabbath laws may take on new forms. The command to keep Sabbath is no less applicable to you and to me today on Sunday right here in 2018. It applies to us in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to rest of the land, what do we see in these verses? We see that God is concerned more than just uh, He's concerned with more than just good agricultural practices. He's concerned with more than just good agricultural practices. God is concerned, extends to the people working the land, and, and it's concerned with the poor, who in that time, that's the welfare system of Israel. That's the welfare system of Israel. Leave the land to rest, that the poor can go and harvest. But it's not their land. God tells you, landowner, to let the land rest and to let the poor harvest. It, but it doesn't even stop there. God, God's concern with these Sabbath laws actually extends even further to the animals, to the domestic animals who are going to do, be doing work, but also to the wild animals who benefit from nature. It's a really fascinating thing to see here. God's concern with Sabbath applies not just to us, it applies to creation. So we're, we're, we are not suggested, we are commanded to rest weekly from our regular work. And again, God's concern even extends to the people we delegate work to. You say, well, I own a business. I own a business. Um, and I don't work on Sunday. 
but I make my guys work on Sunday. Well, God's concern for Sabbath rest actually extends not just to you personally, but to the people that you delegate work to as well. He's concerned about them. And God's concerned about all who work, again, even the animals. He says, let your animals rest. Unfortunately, this command is one that, just to be completely frank with us, it's not taken seriously. We don't take it seriously. We, we make all kinds of excuses for why we don't observe Sabbath rest. But think about this. When, when you're making those excuses, and some of those excuses can sound really, really valid. Really valid. You may point to your checking account. You may point to all kinds of different stuff and say, listen, I have to do this. Let me just say this. When you are making those excuses, you're making those excuses to the all-wise creator. You are making those excuses to an all-loving and caring father in heaven who commanded you to keep the Sabbath holy. Who commanded us to keep the Sabbath holy. Okay? All the way back in Genesis at the creation of the world where is where we're first introduced to Sabbath rest. And at creation, God set the pattern and the day. Like I said, Sabbath laws are redeemed and fulfilled in Christ. And they actually, in fact, take on new forms because of Jesus, because of the incarnate Son of God, the Word made flesh, came. And he was the catalyst for a new creation. And this is actually why we gather for worship not on the seventh day when God rested from the work. So in creation, if you go back and you read the creation story or you can ask the kids, they can probably tell you. God worked six days and he rested when he was done on the seventh day. We worship on Sunday because just like in the old covenant, it was work and then rest. John, we worship on Sunday, the first day of what John calls the Lord's Day or Resurrection Day. Because God worked six days, rested on the seventh. In the new covenant, in the new creation, Jesus worked and then rested. He rested from his work. And he rested, he rose from the dead. He rested on Sunday. New Sabbath, new creation. And so because Jesus finished the work and he rested from his work, on Sunday, that's what, that's what we do. We take Sabbath on Sunday. There's much more that could be said about Sabbath. And if you are, let me just say it. If you're prone to make excuses about Sabbath keeping or you have questions about Sabbath keeping, um, you're probably thinking of all kinds of questions or scenarios of, to say like, well, what about doctors? Or what about, you know, restaurants? They go to restaurants? What about police officers? Are you saying police officers shouldn't work? You know, whatever. You're probably thinking of all kinds of exceptional occupations or questions and stuff like that. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody, but if you have angry emails or questions, you can email pastor about those and talk to him about them later. All right, verses 13 through 18. First he says, we are to keep our lips pure from naming the names of other gods. And, that, and then God lays out ceremonial laws that Israel at, the time, at that time in history is to keep. And again, these are examples of laws that are fulfilled in Christ. And now in the new covenant, they take on new forms. These are laws surrounding the observance of three 
festivals for which every male in Israel is to appear before God. These festivals are kept in Christ and we observe them every week by coming to the Lord's table, which is the only feast in the new covenant that we are commanded to keep. We can see that in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 26. Of course, also when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper. And so we're going to come back to that reality that we keep the, these feasts. We keep what God is telling us and pointing us to by coming to this table. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But the three festivals are religious in nature and at the same time they're linked to one another as they relate to the nation's agricultural cycle. We're going to go really quick through this, so pay attention. Follow with me here. First, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits. This was observed at the time of the barley harvest in March or April when we celebrate Easter or Passover. Passover uh, happens actually one day before this feast begins. The Passover lamb is to be eaten, and this is what Exodus, if you see in Exodus 18, what we read, Exodus 18 is talking about the Passover lamb and the uh, abstaining from leaven for seven days. And so we must understand that now in the new covenant, that Passover meal, the feast of unleavened bread is a celebration that points us to the lamb of God. It points us to the lamb of God and his sinless sacrifice and our gracious redemption. That's what the unleavened talks about. We're going to come back to that in just a second. 50 days after that Passover lamb is slain, the first fruits of the barley harvest are waved after this festival. Comes the Feast of Harvest, or we know it as Pentecost. This is a celebration of the wheat harvest as well as other grain crops. And in Leviticus 23.17, we see that during this festival, the law required an offering of leavened bread. That would be the, the leavened bread that would be offered up at this festival that's required would be the first fruits to the Lord. There's so much in these, we are not even going to scratch the surface hardly. But it's just, it's really cool. The festival, the first festival, Passover, unleavened bread, was, was a, 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 a time of unleavening. It was a time of decreation. Get it all out. Get all the leaven out. In other words, get all the sin out. This is what they did when they came out of Egypt. And so they, God calls his people out of Egypt. And then he says, this is the, past, this is the celebration you're going to do. In other words, get all of Egypt out of you. Unleaven the house. Get the house clean from sin. That's the first feast. But then Pentecost initiates and celebrates a new leaven. In the first feast, leaven is forbidden. The second feast, leaven is commanded. So we know that during the time of Jesus, Pentecost was a celebration of God giving his people the law at Mount Sinai. Acts 2, 1 through 39, you can read that later. We're taught that this old covenant festival is ultimately a foreshadowing, pointing us to the gift of the Holy Spirit that God poured out, guess when? On the day of Pentecost. We see that in Acts 2. So, like a better Moses, think about this. Think about this. Remember, Jesus said, I got to go away so I can send the helper. Like a better Moses, Jesus ascends up to the Father. 
He ascends up to the Father. But what God sends back down is not just law on stone. Remember what God sent back down from the Moses' meeting with God? What did he send back down? Law on stone. And what did Moses immediately do, by the way? Broke it. Literally. They couldn't keep it. God had to do that whole thing again. And he sent it all. He did it all again. But when Jesus is better Moses, Jesus goes up to the Father and what Jesus sends back down is not law on stone. What does Jesus send back down? The Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit impresses the law of God upon our soft, regenerated hearts. He writes it on our hearts. He doesn't write it on stone. And so this is the leaven, the Holy Spirit. Spirit impressed upon our hearts. Writing the law of God upon our hearts is like leaven working in you. What is he doing? He's sanctifying you. Now, let me ask a really honest question. How many of you are as sanctified and walking as purely and holy as you want to be right this very moment? Anybody want to raise their hand and say, I'm exactly as sanctified as I wish I was? No, I didn't think so. This is a process, and it's a process that a lot of times we get impatient about, but what it is is leaven, leavening the lump. If you've ever had to wait for a fresh loaf of bread or your Rhodes rolls rising in the oven or on the counter, sometimes you can get impatient, but you've got to wait. It's got to work itself in through the lump. And this is what the Holy Spirit does to us. It grows us up into Christ. It grows and expands the kingdom forever and ever, world without end. Again, leaven was forbidden the first, commanded in the second. So even though Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at Passover, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which pictures for us the seven-day decreation, where the old leaven of sin and death is cleared out, and the second feast pictures for us a new harvest, a new leaven, a new creation. And so Jesus says this from his heavenly throne, Revelation 21.5, he says this, Behold, I am making all things new. Or if you think that's not convincing enough to apply to us right here, right now, today, and, and at this table today, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Notice what he does not say. He does not say he is going to be a new creation. What does he say? He says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old has passed away. The feast of unleavened bread is over. Pentecost is here. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The third feast, we've got to go quick here. The third feast that all the males were required to appear in Jerusalem for was the feast of ingathering, also known as the feast of booths or tabernacles, where they celebrated God with us. It was during this feast that, that um, celebrated the final gathering of the harvest. Remember, these are all uh, related to the agricultural cycles. And so this was the feast, where the final ingathering, where all of the harvest is brought in together, okay? You, you get in the picture here? And so it was at this feast that Israel was commanded over the course of seven days to sacrifice 70 bulls. Now, maybe God was just, like I said, we're scratching. We're not even scratching the surface. But listen, maybe God arbitrarily chose 70 bulls, or maybe he has a point, and it's pointing us back to Genesis chapter 10, 
we're not going to read that, but in Genesis chapter 10, God lays out what's called the table of nations. And guess how many there are? Anybody want to take a guess? Seventy. Right. Seventy. And that was either representative of the whole world or it was literally the whole world. Doesn't matter. The point is, it was seventy. And so God, at, the, at this feast of ingathering, tells him to, to sacrifice 70 bulls. In Zechariah 14, again, we can't read this, but I'd love for you to just put a mark there and go check it out later. Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, we are told that after the, quote, day of the Lord, after the day of the Lord, all the nations, and it, this is what the prophet Zechariah says. I mean, this blows my mind when I read it. This wasn't even in my sermon. I was listening to Zechariah, you know, playing, and I'm like, whoa, wait, what? Hold on. Zechariah 14, 16 through 19 tells us that all the nations, and it says this, all the families of the earth will be expected to keep, guess what festival? The Feast of Booths. The Feast of Ingathering. You see what is happening. In other words, this feast is ultimately pointing us to God with us. God with who? God with the world, where the nations are gathered in to his people. It is no longer Jew and Gentile. It is one new man, and the nations are called together. So we know this, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, right? People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But do you know it's even more than that? It's even more than that? It's not just people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You know what the Bible really tells us? What Jesus is really after, he's not saying, well, at least I've got one from that people group and I've got one family, two families, three families, 90% of the families from that people group. You know what the Bible describes for us? You know what the feast of ingathering is pointing us to? It's pointing us to this reality that he will save the nations. The nations. The nations. Do you hear me? Listen to the words of John, the revelator in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 says this, verse 23 through 27. He says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Skip ahead a little. He says, They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who is God after? The nation. This is why we say, for all the world, we're not just being cute. It's not just kind of some pipe dream. It's a promise that we're latching onto. The world, the nation. How about we start with America? How about we start right here in our, in our country where we're at right now? Let's call the nation to repent. This is what we do every week when we confess our sin because, listen, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so if we are not a people confessing and repenting and walking uprightly, how can we expect the nation to hear the call? Right? So as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to sum up again these three feasts and I want to help us to see that each time we come to this table, we are celebrating, we are participating in these feasts. When Zechariah told us, when Zechariah told us that 
all the nations would be expected to keep the Feast of Booths. Guess what? They can't keep it in the same form. You know how they're going to keep it? Right here in church. Exodus 23, 18 says, we're not to leave any of the slain lamb until morning. And so if you look back at Genesis 1, what you'll see is that evening precedes morning. And it was evening and it was morning on the first day. It was evening, it was morning on the second day. Evening precedes morning. It is dark before the dawn. And actually, this is how the Jews count their days. We count from midnight. They actually count from evening. They count from around 6 six o'clock, basically. This is a type of the Old Covenant as a whole. In a sense, you can understand the entire Old Covenant as the dark night before Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, the light of the world. The whole of the Old Covenant and God instituting these festivals and these feasts is the dark night before Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, comes. The light of the world comes. And so these three feasts are kicked off with the death of the Lamb. They're kicked off with a seven-day decreation, unleavening. But we're not left empty. We're not left in death. We're not left in dark. We're not left without leaven. These feasts go on and they point us not only to a decreation, but to a recreation, to the new creation in Christ, to the new leaven of the Spirit and of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 33. We're pointed to a new Sabbath on the eighth day, Sunday, where when the body of sin is nowhere to be found. The body of death is nowhere. Don't leave the lamb until morning. Why? Because it's pointing us to this reality that on our Sunday, on our Sabbath, on our morning, when the light comes, guess what you can't find? Death. Sunday morning comes and they can't find his body. Where'd he go? He is alive. He's purchased. It's, it's pointing us to the final victory of Christ, the, the final victory of his gospel when God will gather the nations and uh, the nations that he has purchased, not with the blood of bulls, not with the blood of goats, but with his own precious blood, with the blood of the lamb. Christians, as we come today, we're proclaiming to the nations the victorious death of the lamb who was slain, that they and you may come and that they and you must come. Must come. From darkness to light, from death to life. So as you trust in him, come and welcome to Jesus. Receive your charge. In the beginning, God placed Adam and Eve on the earth and he commanded them what? to be fruitful and multiply, to take dominion of the earth. They were the leaven. You see? Be fruitful, multiply, take over. They were the leaven. But what happened? They fell. And so God sent Jesus the better Adam, and by his Holy Spirit, he has made a new humanity, a new creation. And so your charge is this. Be leavened by the Spirit. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and obey him. Obey him. Refuse to pervert justice. Gather on the Lord's day with the church to worship and to war. And in all of this leavening, go out into the world 
and be leavened. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.